Good evening. As some of you might remember, I'm Orlando Espin on the faculty of the University of San Diego. And as we all know, the 2019 HTI Book Prize is being awarded to Nobody Cries When We Die, God, Community, and Surviving to Adulthood by Dr. Patrick, uh, Patrick Reyes. Dr. Reyes is Director of Strategic Partnerships for Doctoral Initiatives at the Forum for Theological Exploration, which was formerly known as the Fund for Theological Education. He is the first Latino Director of the Doctoral Initiatives, which in 2018 celebrated 50 years of supporting scholars of color through fellowships. His portfolio includes oversight of annual grant funding to create conditions for scholars and students of color to thrive in theological education through fellowships, partnerships, and grants to theological institutions. He collaborates and works with leaders of institutions, foundations, and other para-academic organizations in theological and higher education to build their capacity and uh, to transform theological schools and departments for the 21st century. In 2017 and 18, he was recognized as a great teacher and preacher Amen. by the Children's Defense Fund. Alongside civil rights leaders like the Reverend James Lawson, Dolores Huerta, who is co-founder of the United Farm Workers and Presidential Medal of Freedom Award winner, and Taylor Branch, the MacArthur Genius Grant and Pulitzer Prize winning author. Reyes earned the doctorate and a master's degree from Claremont School of Theology and a Master of Divinity from Boston University's School of Theology. Reyes's lecture tonight is entitled, What is a Good Day? Responding to Dr. Reyes is Dr. Onaji Woodbine, who is Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Religion at American University in Washington, DC. His research explores the varieties of black religious experience, especially as they are expressed on the margins of power and outside the bounds of established institutional authority. His most recent book, Black Gods of the Asphalt, religion, hip-hop, and street basketball, garnered national praise as a profound narrative of survival and self-determination in this season where black male bodies are under attack. The book was reviewed by the New York Times, by NPR's All Things Considered, by ESPN, by Boston Magazine, and by the National Catholic Reporter. Black Gods was long listed for the 2017 uh, PNESPN Award for Literary Sports Writing and named one of the Boston Globe's best books of 2016. Re <laughs> Recently, Dr. Woodbine turned Black Gods into a stage play and was which was performed at the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy for Girls in South Africa. Uh, Dr. Reyes is going to uh, now start his uh, lecture, uh, and uh, it's going to be joined by Dr. Woodbine. And at the end, we will have approximately 20, 25 minutes for question and answer. Okay? Thank, Thank you. you. 
Thank you, Orlando, for that wonderful introduction. Um, thank you. Oh, I'm so grateful to be here um, with you all. What a wonderful honor and true privilege uh, to be up here. For Joanne, the faculty and staff at HCI, I mean, like, you've changed my life. This was the first place where uh, my call was affirmed in theological education, so thank you. Um, before I get to the lecture part, because we're going to kind of play back and forth, um, we're going to do a little creative uh, act together. Um, part of it is uh, my understanding that this idea of vocation um, is better served in community. Amen? Amen. Yes. All right. So uh, we are going to pass around these sheets. And what you see on here is a good day is. And what I'm going to ask you to do is pass it around. We're going to make some poetry together. And so you're going to get this sheet. And after you see, you write your, you'll see this line, a good day is, you'll write whatever you believe, you'll fold the sheet like this, so the next person will only see your line, and you'll fold it again, okay? And we're going to get this around the whole room, and then we'll, we'll see what spurs up. Hopefully it'll be better than anything I had to say, so write small enough, yes. I got, I got extra sheets, too, so just stop me when, you're, when the sheets fall out, all right? All right, so let's answer this question. What is a good day? A good day is uh, when we practice abundant love together, which is why we're doing a communal practice. And I want to tell you about a good day when I came here to ACI for the first time for the Winter's, Winter Writers Retreat. And I'm grateful for the Reverend Dr. Christian De La Rosa, who uh, put me up to Joanne, and Joanne said, if you can make it, you can come. Um, so I... You know, I was working at Northeastern at the time, uh, making just over 40 grand, so I booked a Megabus ticket for 25 bucks. <laughs> and as uh, it happens in the Northeast, a uh, snowstorm hit. Um, everything shut down. Flights, trains, but not Megabus. <laughs> <clears throat> so I made it. I got some pictures here. Um, I want you to see, so there's sled dogs out there. Um, that's uh, my, I didn't do selfies at the time. That's my closest depiction of myself, The Rock. <laughs> my, my wife said we look exactly the same except his teeth are whiter. Um, please don't blow up her image of me. So I'm on this double-decker bus down Interstate 95 uh, going about 35 miles an hour thinking, what the heck am I doing? And I get here to Princeton, and I am overwhelmed by the hospitality and love that I received. I mean, folks here in the front row were here. I mean, Sochi was there to welcome me, and Hildago, we went on runs together. Joanne was welcoming me in. Uli, let's give a round of applause for Uli and all of her work. Now, I have to say, at the time, I was working at Northeastern, and um, I was working for a dude, a white dude in the academy, didn't have a PhD, told me that he wasn't going to give me the time off because, um, well, one, he didn't think being with my people was part of my job. And I was uh, convinced that he had orchestrated the snowstorm. And I, <laughs> I have a picture of him. <clears throat> so he called Winter. Um, God, I'm so thankful for Arya. I took him out. Uh, so this, uh, this good day language comes uh, as an evolution of my work over the last decade. 
Um, and nobody cries when we die. I claim that vocation is called life. In that book, I talk about domestic abuse, addiction, violence, uh, witnessing trauma and death, about the importance of elders who call us to life, many who are here, uh, my grandma, teachers, um, you know, just to name something about my doctoral program, I went out to Claremont uh, to be closer to my family who's in Bakersfield. My dad's here. Can we get a round of applause for my dad? Yes. <laughs> So I wanted to be closer to my grandmother who passed away the week my doctoral program started. And as uh, luck would have it, uh, about two weeks after, I told my uh, dissertation advisor, Cheryl, uh, Dean Cajal, Cheryl Kajawa Holbrook, I'm done. This, is, uh, this PhD life isn't for me. The academy's not for me. It's not what I want to do. And she said, hold on just one more week. I got someone I want to talk to you, or I want you to talk to. And it was Elizabeth Coney Frazier. Amen. Um, so Elizabeth gave me a whole afternoon, and as she does, you know, prayed over me and with me and convinced me that this was a calling. Um, and so I'm grateful for, for, this, for this world. But the book almost didn't make it to life. Um, you know, just to say something about the Academy and the way that this works, uh, my first editor, not Uli, my first editor from the publisher got through about chapter three, and I got um, notes back. From him. Um, and it was right at the, if you've read the book, I was talking about some gang violence that was happening in Salinas and some uh, trauma that I witnessed. And he said, um, let me get the quote here. This person should be more accountable for the violence he created. He should have served time in his stories like this that don't allow justice to happen and violence to proliferate. My editor said I should be locked up. But the book made to life. I, I cut, yes, I, I said, thank you, John Smith, which is technically what was in the comments. I'm not making up a white name. That's, it, I don't know if that's really him, but John Smith was in my footnotes. Um, but even this question about survival, it was in my doctoral program. In my dissertation, The River uh, Beneath a Decolonial Latino Practical Theology, um, I explored this one question. What in the spiritual and religious lives of folks who worked in the fields called them to life? What kept them alive? So in short, I've been writing about bad days for a long time, telling hard and violent stories for a better part of a decade and, and um, prior to that, living a lot of them. And I recently told a colleague, I don't want to tell a story where a child dies because it has taken its toll on my mind and soul. Uh, for example, a few months ago, I was doing a presentation um, for TheoEd Talks, which you can watch online. It's called Wanted, Dead or Alive. And I had a hard time getting out of bed for like a week. Um, I was a horrible father, partner, colleague. But reliving these traumas, uh, memories, um, it takes its toll. Um, I just got back from speaking at the uh, ending mass incarceration event hosted by the Ebenezer Baptist Church. So we talked about locked up bodies in cages for three days, um, about the connection between slavery, Jim Crow, and caged black bodies. A Yale professor, so it was about a study he was doing and shows a video of a five-year-old being locked up. And then he was talking about how this cradle prison pipeline can be evidenced as early as two. Um, and his research was fo focusing on the expulsion rate of black and brown children um, in preschool programs. And he said, if you have a Latino last name or you have dark skin, uh, you're 13 times more likely to get kicked out of a preschool program. So I don't have to tell this body, but we also talked about the interning of children, the arrest and incarceration rate of those waiting deportation hearings now, for me, it's sometimes so overwhelming and heartbreaking that I just want to cry. And this hit home for me, my son who's six, Asher, 
heard me on a conference call for work talking about Latino children being locked up at the border and asked me, am I ever going to be locked in a cage? So this, I mean, it had no layer to it. That happened to be the day in school. This is in April. He's at, he's at a Jewish day school where they're observing Yom HaShoah, Holocaust and Heroism Day. So don't get me wrong, my son is living a blessed life. But can you imagine being six and trying to understand for him as a Latino Jew, his mom's Jewish, I'm Christian, trying to make sense of this world. And as a scholar or whatever you want to call me and who's investigating trauma and violence, who's looking at this thing of vocation as a call to life, you have to know that while I want to dive deep into these stories and the pain and memories of these moments, as a father, I want nothing more than my son just to experience joy and hope. Amen. As a call out, Yada, that's why I get so excited about your work when we talk about children's stories, because no offense to all the monographs in the room, I have to read a children's book every single night. And I want stories about art. I want stories about hope, because I'm tired of dying over and over again in public. And while I know liberation of bodies, hearts, and minds is core to my vocation, I start to ask about telling stories that are about things that make people smile and laugh, namely stories that are PG-rated, and that lift you up. Not to mask the trauma in the world, but to say to this messed up world, I see your violence and I want to raise you hope and joy. Amen. Example of what I want to do, I recently saw a film. Let me see if I cue this up right. Yes. Have y'all seen this, Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse? Damn, that's a good movie. Uh, about an Afro-Latino kid growing up in Brooklyn, Miles Morales. And not to spoil it, he's surrounded by all these other Spider-Men, and they're white. I cried through that whole movie. You have a Latino superhero. You have him overwhelmed by life and trauma throughout the film. And yet at the ending, I'm not going to spoil the ending, but this is the greatest movie ever made. Y'all should go watch it. June 26th, it comes out on Netflix. I'm going to watch it on repeat. Uh, Netflix pays me for saying that, so um, check it out. But this young man goes from surviving to thriving as the next Spider-Man in his own unique way, rocking Jordan 1s, which is pretty dope. So I've been trying to make this term for to surviving, to thriving, I mean, both as an internal move, but also what I think the world might be calling for. And I have to ask, what does this even mean in our context? What does it mean for people of color in the academy, and what does that look like? At the Forum for Theological Exploration for almost four years now, I've been curating an institutional doctoral network, a group of nine institutions in theological education, their presidents and deans. We've been asking and focusing on what thriving looks like for scholars of color. I wrote a research report after we gathered in Denver last year ahead of ATS, um, and we came up, uh, the report's titled, Create Conditions for Scholars of Color to Thrive, and we came up with some definitions. For individual scholars of color, thriving means that they are academically strong, financially secure, community-oriented, vocationally clear, holistic in their sense of self, and prepared to be change agents. I'm going to start with the students. How many of you check all those boxes? How about the faculty? How many of you check all those boxes? So this is the work. My challenge was how to break this data down from thriving in general to smaller, more actionable bites. How do we actually get to thriving? Let me phrase that another way. How does one experience thriving daily, especially to be academically strong? I have to get in and through my PhD program in a primarily white institution. In order to be financially secure, I have to take into account that the average debt load for an FTE fellow applicant who applies to the FTE fellowship is $70,000 in educational debt. 
To be community-oriented, scholars of color are forced to spend most of our time in isolation reading and writing, and in most cases, mimicking the white colonial academy. To be vocationally clear, I have to take the long view of my work. I wish someone would have told me this, that it's not seven years to get your PhD. It's a really 14-year journey if you're on the tenure track. Because from that first day of class, you also have the academic hazing of getting a tenure track job. And that's if you're lucky to land on that track. To be holistic in my sense of self while I'm pursuing a vocation that's so specialized, I only have three to five people review my dissertation, around 10 faculty members plus trustees, depending on which institution you're at, uh, review my, for my tenure file. And if I'm prepared to be in a change agent, this is for the Latinas in the room, represent only 4% of total faculty. So how do you be a change agent when you're the only one in your institution, sometimes in your state? So how do I get to thriving if surviving is still my starting point? How do I get to thriving when these institutions say they want us in this space, but don't act like it? So uh, in uh, keeping with the, the book, I'm going to go back a little bit time into my childhood. Uh, tell a story about friends. I shouldn't say friends. This is Marlene saying, not a friend, it's an acquaintance. But he's not really an acquaintance. This is a dude I knew. Um, who, uh, this is family, Catholic family, social justice oriented, feed the hungry Thanksgiving social justice, charity justice, Catholics, uh, white. Um, and I've known him since, you know, third or fourth grade. Uh, the oldest, uh, he played on all of my teams with me, super athletic. His nickname was Sonic. Went to the same junior high and high school together. And I love going out to this dude's house. Because out of his house, I remember going out there when I was about 16, um, he had a whole gym to himself, uh, full court basketball gym. He had a field that he owned where we could ride dirt bikes and go-karts. Uh, and his mom just brought us snacks all the time. I didn't understand it. I was like, this is amazing. He had his own room, uh, video games. It just never, you know, it was just, it was amazing. It was like a little Disneyland. So I'm sitting at their table for dinner one night after basketball practice. Smelly as all hell because, you know, we, we just came from practice. Um, and we say a little Catholic prayer before the meal. And uh, then his sister cuts me off as we're, like, filling up our plates. And I come from a good Latino family where we, uh, eating is a sign of being polite. And his little sister, who's probably in third or fourth grade at the time, says, Patrick, you know what we named our pig? I said, no, what? We named him Patrick because he eats like you, smells like you, and he came from pig fields like you. So you can imagine. Oh, let me give you a picture. So this is what she said. So if you read the book, I need to flex up, take this third, at least beat up her brother, do something. I'm really pissed off. I'm, you know, I'm trying to hold, hold me back. Actually, I don't like that picture. Let me, uh, I try to cute it up. This is actually me. <laughs> oh, I'm so cute. Her mom quickly told her that wasn't polite. Um, and you better believe, you know, I was, I was so mad. Now, what you have to understand, though, is the, the pig fields that, that they, she was referencing were the Rodeo grounds where they showed off their pig, which was right on the north side of Salinas where my dad lived. They only knew I lived out there because when we were younger, um, he would come out there to play baseball against us. And two elements kind of translate from this story to my work in the academy. The first, this is a, a reflection for me of the primarily white colonial academy. 
While they say they want us all to thrive, they invite us in. They feed us whatever they got in their pantry, in this case, their degree offerings. They say we are welcome in their space, are including us out of some sense of charity, social justice model. They're happy to have us participate in their thriving of their kids' lives as long as our diversity makes the school look better or the community better for their own kids to have exposure to us. And they don't see or treat us as humans because to treat us as humans means they would have to recognize our cultures, histories, traditions, families, practices, and lives as equal to their own. You know, I used to think that there was a little more grace in this. I was at ATS uh, Centennial Biennial um, last summer in Denver, and uh, there was a motion on the floor to read into the minutes the separation of children was immoral, and that got voted down 56 to 48. We're not talking about doing a public recognition, just to read it into the minutes. So I want to extend grace to primarily white institutions, and I want to say 56 is still more than 48. The second thing I learned is my work is bigger than their bullshit, or in this case, their pig shit. When I was doing my research for my PhD, I interviewed folks who worked in the fields. My question was simple. What in your religious and spiritual lives helps you survive life in the fields? Now, they gave a bunch of answers. Uh, and one that stands out to me as I tell this story is that those same fields those, that little girl was trying to shame me for were named in the interviews as sacred spaces. Amen. Those spaces, the soccer fields off Constitution, the Rodeo grounds, the parks on the north and east side were for Latinos in our community sacred spaces. Why? Because that is where this question between surviving and thriving was flipped. It's where they heard and celebrated their children. It's where we, at least one day a week, could have fun, joy, and laughter, and have hope for what might be. It was a shared space where they knew their neighbors and friends would be able to be there to share stories, dreams, and aspirations. And for folks who were surviving just like them. On Saturdays, this is where folks came together to share meals, yell at each other's children, because, you know, we can't just parent our own, <laughs> gossip and love one another. These pig fields were where we came to have a good day to practice abundant love. And is going to pick it up from where he connects. So I want to talk about sacred space, his notion of sacred space in the context of another community. Um, I'm talking about urban basketball courts within the zones of inner city abandonment around the country, where young black and Latinx youth gather to turn their bad days into good days. This is um, a photo of a community in inner city Boston. And a young man was shot in this area. And they made a memorial for him at half court. And they asked the the brother who was shooting, why are you shooting? And he said, because I can talk to this young man's spirit on the court. Although these young black and Latino men and women were pushed by predominantly white institutions to these courts and pulled by poverty, they didn't go there to be exploited. They went there to discover their humanity especially during times of crisis, they turned themselves into choreographers of the court, playing the game to express grief, to generate hope and revel in community. I want to tell you a couple stories from the young men that I interviewed 
and talk about how Dr. Reyes' work helps me to understand their stories better. So there was a young guy named Tyshawn. He was a street ball in Boston who described the moment on the court in which the sound of the music, the hip hop beats, and the bouncing of the ball triggered his awareness of another dimension beyond the violence of the neighborhood. Man, it's just like you forget what's going on, he said, on the outside world. For that, however much time you're on the court, you don't know the time of day. Everything is blacked out between those four lines. There was another street baller named Marlon. He described the feeling of being on the court as his spirit leaving his body and allowing him to perceive events outside of the bounds of time. I feel like a free spirit, he said. It's like, you know when they say your spirit goes to a different place, whether it's heaven or hell, or you get stuck in between in the afterlife? I feel like my soul overtakes my body and it just does what it does out there. And then people are always like, how did you know you were gonna do that move? I get a premonition when I'm on the court, he said. So if I see it already, I'll tell somebody, go set a screen. And then when I get down there, I know I'm going to dunk on them. <laughs> there was another brother named Jermaine who was known for soaring above the rim. He likened his own flights of consciousness on the court to being on a cloud or a wave. It's almost as if your body is taking over, he said. It's like nothing can slow you down. Nothing is going to take you off this cloud. It's electrifying. You're like, is this really happening? It's an out-of-body experience. It was as if on these basketball courts, these ball players had discovered what Dr. Reyes refers to in his beautiful scholarly work, a theology of the soil, a space, he says, a ground for the soul and body to rest, conditions for good soil. On the court, surrounded by community, these young men and women could hear their call to life. This safe space gave them permission to let go of the facade of toughness required in the streets and to witness something more. I realized this was the case when I started to go around to different tournaments in Boston. And nearly every single one was a memorial designed to honor somebody who had been killed in the streets. And here's a few slides of uh, some of those tournaments. The Manny Wilson Basketball League. He was like a father figure to many of us uh, growing up in, in Roxbury, inner city Boston, uh, was killed in the streets. He was also a Boston police officer. Um, the Chill Will Tournament, uh, Chill Will, uh, his father puts on this tournament for the young man here, says R.I.P. Willie C. Vale, who was gunned down in the streets. The Save Our Streets Summer Classic. Every year, they send doves into the air for those who had died that year in the streets. The Louis Saunders Memorial Tournament for Louis Saunders, who also passed away. The Suave Life Streetball Tournament. Uh, I'll never forget, you, the, the court is sort of below street level, and uh, I jumped down onto the court, and uh, this tournament 
was dedicated to five people who were killed on the streets in Mattapan. Their bodies were found um, naked on the streets, the streets there. And then uh, the community awareness tournament. This one really got me because the, the young people who put it together, they always leave a space open for whoever is murdered that year. Um, these basketball tournaments were not designed by outsiders interested in monetizing black and brown athletic bodies. This wasn't an AAU program creating tournaments to serve up these young people to white universities and billion dollar corporate machine like the NBA. They were memorial games designed to discern the call to life in the midst of almost certain death, to borrow Dr. Reyes' line. And their technique for discernment was to retell and relive their stories during the actual flow of games. This is what Walter Fluker, ethicist Walter Fluker, calls rememory, or the narrativization of the past, the reclaiming of desperate meaning, or what Dr. Reyes refers to as the practice of listening for the holy through our stories. These young men and women were drawing from their stories to discern their call to life on the court. On the court, they were asking big questions, such as, can I be somebody one day? What happens to my friend when he or she dies? Are they still with us in some form? Do the living owe anything to the dead? And this attempt to discern life out of death was a shared communal act. <coughs> They were using their bodies, the bounce of the ball, their flights to the hoop, as a sacred vocabulary, signifying their collective search for meaning in the world. Many of these narrative and ritual practices took on a similar form for those that practiced them on the court. There was always a three-part structure. First, something violent would happen in the street which had caused them to lose a loved one. Then the individual would find his way to the court where he felt most comfortable removing the mask of toughness required in the streets. Leaving that social conditioning behind in a state of vulnerability, the second phase of the ritual would begin when the individual would suddenly feel the presence of their deceased loved one with them on the court. A dialogue between the living and the dead would ensue, in which the movement of the body, the ball into the hoop of emotion became vehicles of meaning, signaling that death was not final. It was as if the spirit had entered these objects and given them a life of their own. What a revelation for many of these downtrodden young people berated by violence and death on a daily basis. That death did not have the last word. And finally, the third phase, after they had performed this dance with the deceased, they would often feel an immense sense of gratitude and release of the inner turmoil they had been carrying inside, and then the ritual would close. The power of Dr. Reyes' scholarship is his insistence passed down to him by the prophetic wisdom of his grandmother that even though the rules of the game may be rigged in favor of the wealthy and privileged, there is an unnamed something present in the depths of human experience 
that calls us to life. In all expressions of community and cultural life, historian of religion Charles Long writes, oppressed peoples have had to experience the truth of their negativity and at the same time transform and create another reality. Given the limitations imposed upon them, they created at the level of their religious consciousness. I think this is the theoretical and spiritual genius of Dr. Reyes. While bearing the wounds of colonial violence in the pig fields and street corners of Salinas, he has squeezed every ounce of being from his flesh and bones in colonized academic spaces in order to help create another reality. One in which the people of Salinas are sacred and where a little pig shit produces the best soil. So I am a practice theologian, so we have a couple practices to close us out. Um, and thank you for uh, the beautiful words. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I think Joanne and I share is our love for this room and for the people in it. And I hope you know that, you know, scholarship aside, uh, articles aside, that, um, you know, I deeply love and care about each and every one of you. And uh, my, my role, my work, both at FT and my chosen vocation research is really not in service to your bibliography, but to your life. So if you ever need a meal, a bed, uh, call me, 831-419-6121. I said quick because we're on Facebook. <laughs> <clears throat> Hit me up after, I'll give you the actual number. Um, but I want to end with this, I, the good day metaphor. Both will we'll do the poetry after we do a quick practice. And I think I know how to end up Good. I think I know how to end a day okay. My son and I do practices, aside from the books. Um, we do a lot of meditative prayers and all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to invite us into a meditation of sorts. So get comfortable. I'm going to lead us in this practice that he helped develop with me. So close your eyes. Take a deep breath in, deep breath out. Another deep breath in, deep breath out. Pay attention to your body, where you might be feeling stress. <clears throat> Check in with your head. Maybe you're holding stress in your forehead. Relax your face. your jaw, check in with your neck and shoulders, relax your spine, check in all the way down to your feet, let them hold lightly on the floor. I want you to call to your mind, to your imagination, the face of someone you know loves you.
Call them to your mind's eye and see them in their fullness. See their face, the wrinkles around their eyes. See their mouth, their chin. See their hair that they only have. Rest in this moment with your beloved. Take a moment with them, knowing that you are with someone that loves you more than anything. And in your mind's eye, see them raising their hand to touch your shoulder. Feel the weight of their palm on your shoulder. Feel the closeness, the distance between you and this person who loves you. As you sit in this moment, hear them say to you the words that you need to hear in this moment that they alone can give you. Let their words wash over you. Let their love wash over you. Sit in this feeling for just a moment. And as you sit in this moment with them, I want you to imagine returning gratitude to them. This beloved person of yours could be a grandmother, a friend, a lost ancestor, a child. Imagine returning gratitude for their love. Hold on to this moment. This is the hardest part. You have to say goodbye. Mm -hmm. So as you thank them for this moment with them, with your beloved, see yourself separating gratitude. Look at their face and know you are so loved. And as you let their image of distance itself. Remind yourself of the breath to breathe in and breathe out and return yourself to your body. And as you're willing and able, come back to the room.
I don't know who you thought about. For me, it was my grandma. And I return to these moments uh, as often as I can to remind myself that I'm loved, especially in those moments where I feel like I'm the only one. So I want to see if I'm right about my original thesis that 1% of all of us is better than 100% of me and Anaje. So where are our poems at? Can we get some folks up in the front rows to read these poems out loud? Can we? <laughs> all right. A good day is seeing people, seeing people I love and those who hang in there with you no matter what. To feel the sun kiss my cheek for the first time after winter is over. When I kiss my wife and children goodbye. When I'm able to make others smile. When joy and wonder are uninhibited by the tentacles of oppression. When we can do sobremesa with friends and family. Coffee and a day at the park with my wife and kids. When I'm able to read, write, and cite those in my community. When our daughter makes us laugh. When life blossoms in any way and the beach, and the beach is nearby. A good day is when I can give someone a reason to smile or good use or God uses me to speak a good word. Friendship and community, sunshine, the sun rays kissing my face, the sand caressing my feet. A good day is a sunny beach the sounds of my kids splashing in the waves, feeling my wife and daughters near me. Amen. A good day is the opportunity to laugh when I am able to sleep. Una playa en Borinquen, a cup of coquito, a plate of arroz con gandules en lechón, and Gilberto Santa Rosa in the background. FaceTiming with my mom, when I return home or when I bring home to me. When I can channel my anger into something more just into something more just for my community. The feeling of weight lifted off, your shoulders combined with the knowledge of walking in, in your purpose. Being suspended in space, knowing that God is holding you from within and without and all around you. Being able to see the joy-filled smiles of the children and youth in my community. To see your beloved and know that you are loved. Thriving is being out in the clean Maine woods. Enjoying my children's stories and laughter. Learning and teaching new ideas. Having family love and support seeing the family accomplish the best for all, having dinner with my family every night, a good day in the garden, my son smiling, nieces and nephews thriving, officials at the border see themselves as equally humans as those they detain and they advocate for them themselves, a day in which I can be fully me, 
fully loved and free to love others fully, being with family and friends, a day with beloved ones at outdoors in a sunny day, filled with gratitude. A good day is one where living is not questioned and love is abundant. A good day is one with my wife and daughter doing work that serves the church of Jesus Christ. A good day is when I can travel and not be randomly checked. When I get a call from a student sharing good news. A day where my dreams, aspirations come true and inside is exactly what's happening outside. Love, peace, free. A good day is when you, you can, can study whatever opportunity for a young person. Seeing the church community center be a holy place where, everyone, where everyone's experiences Sorry. <laughs> no, I can't read the last part, otherwise I'm adding something. Let's give her a round of applause. So we're going to have uh, like uh, 25 minutes for questions and answers. Uh, so someone is bringing, Suzette is bringing the microphone to you. Thank you gentlemen, doctors, for pushing the boundaries of what constitutes a scholarly presentation. Thank you very much. I want to ask you, Patrick, about your, you said that you asked this question about what is thriving yeah. rather than surviving. Um, and um, did, who did you ask? Did you ask students as well, students of color who are in the track of? Yeah, you can find both reports on uh, FT's website. But yeah, we did a whole research thing around students. We interviewed at the institutions. Um, when we gathered everyone together, we asked as well, uh, folks who were doing it. And, uh, you know, it was so aspirational. You know, like that's when you know, we see that slide. You think everyone wants that. And um, it's pretty unattainable right now in the way that these, the structures of our programs are, are done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Patrick, I'm curious about the beginning of your presentation when you were talking about being tired of bad days and yeah. tired of talking about bad days. Yeah. And I want to connect it to Anaja's book. Um, there's this one beautiful scene. Well, I want to try to put together why you might be able to talk about a good day in this context yeah. as opposed to in another context you might not want to. Um, so in Onaja's book, um, there's this beautiful scene where there's a player who got hurt or was ill and, and he didn't think he could play again. And then um, <coughs> there came a time after surgeries that he got to play again. And so as he's playing, he's crying and he looks at his trainer and she's crying. And there's something about that resonance of pain yeah. that then, then brought him joy. Yeah. So he was able to have the joy because the pain was recognized. And I read that into the way that you're talking to us, this very safe space. But I think if you're going to take joy, right, a good day into the community, that's what they want from us, uh, yeah. right? Is just be happy. Yeah. 
just don't, just forget about all that bad stuff that happened to you. So I find it like, it's an honor to be in a place where you feel safe enough to talk about a good day without us abusing that and without us jumping to it and ignoring all of the pain that actually makes that good day and, and you seeing a kind of mirror in us that can resonate like the bad, you know, first and, and, and sort of cry together and then have the good on top of that. So I appreciate your kind of starting that way and, and all the implications that it gave me from both books together. So thank you. Muito obrigado. Uh, I, I was wondering, in terms of the um, when you mentioned your childhood uh, memory at the house of your friend, and you compared it to to the institutions as they, you know, feeding us with degrees and all that. Um, what is it that you envision as a next step in terms of the institutions yeah. that you know? Okay, they're feeding us, they're giving us the degrees and all that, and they say that they, you know, accept. what is it that you envision as a next? step forward in that in that process yeah that's a great question i think it ties to this the what you just raised i mean there's the difference between the intra conversation that we're having here um so what i would share with this group is very different than what i'd share is my um my role at fte for example with a white audience would be very different um, but for this group i think it's a combination of two things and surviving these institutions having mentors in here who have gone first i mean i I cut this out of the, the lecture, but one of the things that I love about my job, and I don't know if Joanne feels this way, but I've just been in my job for four years, and I am seeing um, applications come through where I'm reading about people's work, who their dissertations, their bibliographies are 100% in color. That's amazing. I mean, I'm standing next to Orlando Espin. That's pretty cool. Uh, without the folks who were the first and only uh, we wouldn't be here. Um, so uh, this sort of like surviving these these institutions is definitely part of that, and that's been a part of my work. In terms of the moving to thriving, I think there's got to be some sort of alternative built um, by us, for us, and with us. And those spaces are so unique. HGI is so unique in that we can have this room together. FTE is another space in which we can have that room together and have this conversation. So there's got to be some sort of alternative that's built. And there's there's models out there of folks doing that. Um, but it's got to be a both fan. There's both folks who are playing in the institution, navigating these white institutions, using the colonial money to build decolonial programs. You know, I'm not a decolonial purist, um, but yeah, I mean, this is the both end of that work. Um, and I don't know what the what your work would be um, in terms of how you see that as a potential doctoral student um, going through programs that are degreeing you to do a particular thing, a very specialized thing, um, but. We're working hard to think about what alternatives might look like. Yeah. They're not Latinos. Oh, uh, there you are. Uh, <laughs> uh, Patrick, thank you very much. From your bird's eye perspective, are there particular institutions that stand out in terms of exemplary practices or uh, spirit that's headed in the right direction uh, that you would care to name? Yeah, I think uh, institutions like people are on a growth trajectory. 
Um, it's easier for me to name uh, para-academic organizations, HCI and FTI, I think, are, are moving in that right direction. Um, the, the theological education under so much stress right now. So like, as they are, we're talking, we're, we're at BU at the same time. BU 10 years ago was a different place than where it is now. And so I can see that because of the work I do with the Institutional Doctoral Network, working with their dean and director of uh, doctoral programs, can see that growth. Um, we're talking about, I think, uh, you know, public education. Um, I, mean, I went to Cal State Sacramento for my undergrad, you know, 30,000 students mostly students of color, a lot of first generation, and that sort of first intervention in education, I think is moving in the right direction. Now, where they fund, and you know, you get into the higher education, what, you know, how public funding goes, but I think those types of institutions that are already there, I mean, we're talking about, you know, f folks that, you know, in New Mexico and Arizona, that are closer to the, that are, you know, 90% Latino. I mean, they're already doing that work on the ground, if we could focus funding in those sorts of areas where the students are already there, uh, we might see a shift in larger education. One of the things I'm convinced that probably won't happen is shifting institutions who have no investment in people of color, except for programs. So one of the things we are learning very clearly in the Institutional Doctoral Network is that um, if you do a diversity program, a keynote lecture, a visiting assistant professor of whatever, um, bringing in one person of color does not mean you have uh, solved the diversity question. Um, so those institutions that have already shifted the student demographic, I think will be following with their academic administration. But that, um, that also talks to us who are getting PhDs. We have to want to go and teach in those places as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, in my own doctoral program, I was completely isolated. Um, I didn't realize that there was a hidden curriculum. I came from inner city community. I didn't know what office hours were. Um, my relationship with my teachers was combative. It was um, disciplinary. And I think um, that was the case for most of us coming from the communities that we came from. And so when I got to college, I didn't realize that adults were there to facilitate my success and that the, the rewards uh, mostly came from stuff that happened outside of the classroom. Yeah. I thought it was a meritocracy where you, know, you do your work and you, you, you lift yourself up. And, and actually, the wealthy students uh, who were there had already learned the rules of the game, as, yeah. as Dr. Reyes said. And so they were accruing capital outside of the classroom. And so one of the things, and I don't know if anyone's read um, The Privileged Poor by Abraham Jack, just came out. It's a fascinating book about the symbolic capital that uh, is often missing from doubly disadvantaged students um, in these spaces. And so simple th policy changes like declaring what office hours actually are right, across the campus, so that students who don't feel they, ha they have ownership in the space actually know, no, you're supposed to go and actually hang out with your professor. You, you don't need to, to say anything about what's going on in the class, you can just hang out and be friends, you know, with your professor. Um, there are other, other issues, like for example, I, I went to Yale, and um, there was a cleaning program, right, where you know, you would have some students who needed the money and who would clean up the dorms, right? 
things like that. And, and in general, most of those students were poor students. So there are those kinds of things that I think um, this hidden curriculum that we're often not aware of, but actually makes the most difference in students' lives. And I didn't realize that until I was a doctoral student, until it was almost too late. In the back. No, she was back. <laughs> You're going to have eyes behind your head. Uh, thank you both. Um, one of the connections I saw uh, between the two presentations were, was uh, these sort of vignettes of sacred practices or um, rituals. And I was wondering if for either or both of you there was any music that was a part of that that resonated with you? Yeah, definitely. Um, at every basketball tournament, streetball tournament, you have hip hop. You have the DJ. There's, there's a confluence of black culture on the playground, right? You have the MC, right, who's uh, lobbing verbal alley-oops, you know? And then you have um, people break dancing, dancing. You got the music, and then you have the ball players. So they're all dancing to the same beat. Right? Just like earlier in the 1920s, you had ball players that were playing ballrooms, jazz ballrooms, where they would play Lindy Hop dance and so forth, and then move the chairs and then play basketball. You know, so there's, there's, there's definitely this shared culture. And I, I would say that the beat allows you to enter an alternative zone and space and let go of you know, your problems in the street. So. Definitely a huge part. Also, a funny story about the title to the book. Uh, so the original title uh, was "Through the Valley," which is pretty trite. Are there any biblical scholars in the room? <laughs> yeah. All right. So I pitched this this uh, title to the book, and I get from the production group, the people who are doing the titles and marketing and looking at Amazon, all that kind of stuff. They come back to me and they say, Patrick. We can't use that title. I said, oh, man, this is because it's a Bible verse, and they don't want to do this. It won't sell, whatever. Um, and the person who was in charge of marketing said, uh, no, I was around in the 90s. I know what you're talking about. And so I'm sitting on this call. like, what are you talking about? Because I, <laughs> I listened to music in the 90s. I know. It. She said, I, I listened to Coolio Gangster's Paradise, too. So I like had this moment like, oh, hell no. <laughs> Not only does that come from like the worst movie ever made, uh, but you're picking some bad music. Anyway, so I went with the Tupac lyric from uh, Life Goes On. And it, um, you know, that the first line to Life Goes On uh, ends with, is there heaven for a G? Um, so nobody cries when we die is a line from probably halfway down, which I thought was funny because the same production person didn't listen to the song that came out the same year as Coolio's Gangster Paradise. So uh, music has a definite play in these stories and um, in the narratives and lives of people. And you know, just to say that there's social science research that like, you know, this is not to age everyone in the thing, but when you were 17, that whatever song was in the top five is what's gonna be stuck in your head for the rest of your life. <laughs> so yes. And I, I want to add to that too. I, since doing this research on streetball, I went to Cuba and then to Nigeria and studied the uh, Orisha tradition, <coughs> where music is what calls the 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 gods. 
you know, in, into the space so that, you know, they rise actually from the ground. Heaven is in the ground. They rise up the feet and, you know, and to, to the head to enlighten the individual in the community. And I've often thought about um, the way in which these young people are using the basketball court in a similar, similar way. Right, where the ancestors um, who have recently passed away are sort of entering their bodies through this sacred dance or music. Lo bueno se repita. Thank you. Uh, Patrick, two years ago I met you at Haley Farm yes. and you blew away the crowd and you've blown me away again. Thank you for your transparency. My question is, as a parish minister, yeah. um, how do you stay connected to the parish? How can I be one of those uh, pastors that invites someone like you to share your story, to inspire and encourage the youth and the children that are connected to our ministry? Yeah, that's a good question. One is those stories are already in your congregation. So that's the, you know, the, the obvious story also. I mean, I, I travel in between. The uh, Catholic Church that's in the town I'm in has a very, I mean, the uh, the Catholics in the room, uh, we're, we're going through some stuff right now. And we have a very conservative priest um, who pisses me off anytime I show up. So that, like, how do I show up in the church is normally pissed off, um, even in mass, which I don't know how that works. Um, so I end up doing a lot of partnership work. Now, I said my wife is Jewish. I do a lot of work. Um, my invitation to Ebenezer doing the any mass incarceration thing was actually through the synagogue, local uh, congregation, which my children go to, um, and working with the rabbis there. So I work with anyone who's got shared mission and purpose, um, who are working on behalf of God to make justice happen in the world. Um, and so I just look for folks who are doing that work um, in regards to their uh, religious tradition. And if you ever want someone, you know, give me a call. You know, they're all sitting right here. Um, yeah, y'all heard that. She wants y'all at your church. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you both for really stimulating conversation. Patrick, you talked earlier about, <coughs> see if I get the quote right, using colonial money yeah. to create decolonial. No, no, yeah. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you might talk about what are the costs of that work? Yeah. Don't come, like, right? It's, it's important, it's valuable, yeah. and it's expensive to us, too, yeah. if you know what I'm saying. Like, so yes. maybe reflect on the costs of, yeah. of doing that. Uh, Naja and I were talking about the commute that people of color have to do in the academy, going from their community and back and the psychological trauma that that happens going back and forth and the currency that uh, you both lose and gain in different communities because of that. So, um, you know, talking about Salinas, I go back once or twice a year. Um, I've lost a lot of credibility in the hometown in which I do a lot of work um, stuff, uh, doing stuff in. Um, so it, it comes at a tremendous loss um, going back and forth. That commute is terrible. Um, I'm thankful for people like you that I get to hang out with. I mean, that may, that, I mean that's why HCI, FT, these, these programs need to exist because we're all commuters. Um, and that's a long ass commute, you know, like, we, you know, white folks don't have to do that. Um, you know, they have to argue for their works to be included in the core curriculum or on every syllabus. Um, they don't have to ask where the extra citations are. Um, they only have to know one bibliography. We have to know two, three, maybe four. 
Um, so it, that commute comes at a tremendous uh, cost to us psychologically. And I think, you know, for our kids too, I mean, as a, a dad, I just think about the commuting my son has to do. I told that story around. He hears, they, they soak in so much about our commuting. I'm becoming acutely aware of how loud I yell on conference calls because um, he's soaking it in. Um, you know, my anger and rage, and uh, he's the sweetest boy alive, and I would hate for him to grow up as angry as I am. So, um, yeah, that, it comes at a deep cost to us and our families, yeah. Metaphor commuting, I'm gonna take that with me. Yeah. I would just, just to add to that, I, I, as I, in his book, he has this powerful story of BU where uh, you went in a classroom with your work clothes on. Yeah. And he's, he's exiled from class, and. I just kept thinking about um, Fanon and, and sort of just to speak this language is to take on this world and to internalize the violence of this, this space. But at the same time, in order for you to tell your story, you had to leave. So there's something powerful about naming or, or gathering the tools of the academy to name something that people, that is unconscious to the people you want to serve. So I think there's a benefit and a, and a power to, to that work, but it does come at, at great cost and um, you sort of mutilate your own body and, and mind at the same time. No. And you have accountability partners in all kinds of places. So Junior, my best friend who I've uh, known since we were in junior high together, we went on a hike in that time. I wasn't supposed to be come through. I wasn't going to come back to BU. I got a call from Nori Leach, and that helped as well. She said, you should come back. And I go on this hike with my best friend, and he says, that's BS. You're not going to go back. You know, you can't do that to the rest of us who are here. Yeah. Um, you have to show them. Don't let them beat you with this game. I mean, like, so it's this community, this commuting, as folks on both ends, and they hold you accountable everywhere. Amen. And it's about developing that thick skin to say like, okay, some stuff is absolutely yes, I will receive that. Some of that's their stuff, you know, that's their BS, they can hold it. Uh, but learning how to navigate that and do that commute, um, yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, thank you so much to both of you. I loved it, and that's all I'm going to say. Um, I'm, I keep thinking of this idea of the good day and how it is good to hold on to the good days. Um, and good days are not very common for me or for the people that I'm talking to right now. I'm sorry if I get a little emotional. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can talk more about how to get to the good days and how to find the good days when bad days are more common, yeah. and especially when bad days are the origin of our work yes. most of the time. Yes. So you're not only creating new bad days, but relieving bad days from the past to be able to originate something that is academic, but connects back to your community and to the people you love. Just want to honor your feeling you know, about it. And, um, only thing that I that helped me, you know, thinking about it is my father. My father, when I was 15, told me that I, I had everything I needed within me. He said, you know, he taught taught me to listen. And um, when everyone in my doctoral program was trying to get a job, I was trying to come alive. You know, my my dissertation was my attempt to to live. 
you know, as Dr. Reyes said. And that's that's the only thing that sustained me with, with good days. And you know, I felt like when you make a commitment to your own internal center, at least in my experience, the universe responds. You know, but it's just my experience. But that's that's been if I think about it, my own methodology is to t spend time to listen to myself. Uh, Reyes Woodbine, thank you so much. Uh, first, a comment. I'm waiting for the joint book to come out. I actually, think, I actually think that would be really exciting. Yeah, I'll work, work together. Yeah. So, uh, put me in the acknowledgments when you do right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're welcome. Uh, so uh, I, I keep hearing the word anger coming out a lot. And uh, actually, that's something I'm interested in writing on currently. Uh, I'm actually a fan of anger. Um, and anger is what got me this far. And so uh, and, and at the same time, I have a daughter. And uh, I want her to have joy. And, but I'm also realizing that actually sometimes anger and joy feed into each other in some way. And so I'm wondering, how, how would you, either of you, uh, because both of your works kind of reflect on this a little bit. How, how, how do you go about redeeming anger and leveraging anger for joy? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. If I think about the people I serve in my work, they're all angry. They're all angry. Um, and when they, you know, they talk about in the streets, you can't express it because you get locked up or you get shot or you get stabbed. But in a safe space, whatever that space is, where there's elders around, and for them it was a basketball court. You block someone's shot, you scream, you yell, you curse at them, you talk trash at them, but you don't fight. And there's an intimacy, <coughs> there's an intimacy in the anger that you're raw and you're real, you know? And I think some of our closest friends we can be angry with. And so, um, you know, I'll tell you another story. There was one kid who they kept feeding um, medicine to stop his anger, all kinds of, you know, drugs. He was in all kind of anger management programs. And he said, you know, why would I take that when I can just go to the court? You know what I mean? And express that. So there is something powerful there. And it's similar with sadness. I think, you know, although the blues makes you, you know, it's about sadness. It doesn't make you feel sad. It makes you feel joy and happiness. So there's definitely value in that. But I haven't thought about it, you know, as a tool in that way. So thank you for that. Uh, I'll just give you this. I mean, I was, came up with the title before I had any content like academics tend to do. Um, and I wanted to do a whole presentation on a good day. Like I wanted to just do, here's all my practices on thriving. Here's what I do to celebrate joy and celebrate with you all. And knowing folks in the room and the hermeneutic suspicion that's uh, deep in this group, 
Uh, there's no way I'm going to get away with just talking about happy things. Um, I need to talk about what's happening in the world. And um, so it's playing that balance between when to be angry and when to express happiness and joy and what people need in that moment. You know, like I said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not writing in an academic institution anymore. I'm trying to celebrate y'all's work, um, which means I have to do a lot of listening and hear, hear anger when it's really anger and rage when it's really rage and hear what it's for and to call people into something creative and generative out of those moments. Um, I'm mentoring a couple folks right now who've served time in prison, trying to think through what does it look like to create a uh, prison education pipeline, something a little bit different um, about hopefully one day them creating their own scholarship program. And uh, the amount of rage that's in those mentoring conversations is always present. Um, deeply traumatized individuals who are trying to think of something generative. And I don't ever try to dismiss uh, that anger and rage because it comes from a righteous and holy place. And I also want to say we got to grow, grow things. Uh, one of the things that I say about academics, and we see this play out every year at AARSBL, there's a few folks uh, in our guilds who walk around with uh, flamethrowers. And they want to burn these institutions down to the ground. <clears throat> and the thing is, is they're really attractive to hang out with, uh, these righteous anger scholars. Um, eventually, everything will be burned down to the ground, and they'll turn that flamethrower on you. Um, so I try to work with folks who see that anger and rage for what it is and try to turn it into something creative and beautiful. Um, yeah, we, uh, I think Carmen was talking about you had a student who did an art piece on uh, butterfly and its transformation of the Stations of the Cross. And it sounds beautiful and filled with so much pain and anger. And the last, if I remember the last one, the Risen thing had a graduation cap on. I mean, that's beautiful. That's someone turning rage into beauty and art. Uh, that's what I want to be a part of. Yeah. And with that, we have to stop. Uh, God's sacrament has told us. <laughs> <laughs>